This is Privacy Matters, the data protection podcast from Be Secure. Welcome back to Privacy Matters, the series of podcasts brought to you by Be Secure in association with Channel 103. In each episode in the series, we've been exploring trends in data protection and how they might impact you, your life, and your business. In this episode, we'll once again be mining the knowledge of our expert, Brian Siney from Be Secure, a niche consultancy business providing professional services to clients in the Channel Islands, the United Kingdom, and the European Union. In this episode, we'll review some of the latest developments in data protection and be polishing up our crystal ball with a look into what our expert commentator thinks is in store for us over the next five to ten years. Brian, welcome back. Thank you, James. Now, since we last spoke, a lot's happened around the world when it comes to data protection, including the EU granting the UK that all-important adequacy when it comes to data protection. Yes, as I mentioned before, data protection is such a fast-moving area to work in. It's really exciting. So the first big news is the EU awarding the UK adequacy status, which effectively takes the burden away from businesses having to do what they call standard contractual clause and lots of other paperwork around data transfers. And what this means is that data can flow now freely from the EU into the UK with this new status being in place. And that means that the EU have formally evaluated the UK and said that the data protection laws give adequacy or equivalence to the data protection rights that the EU would expect to see in the UK. So that's really, really good news. And it's just come in at the nick of time. At the end of June was the deadline for getting the adequacy. So that's really good. And just to follow on from that, they also announced this week that they have concluded successfully the talks for South Korea to get its EU adequacy status as well. So we will now be up to 14 countries who will now have EU adequacy status. And just locally, Jersey is in the middle of its own assessment by the EU of its data protection laws. So hopefully we will pass our own adequacy test in that matter there. Staying with the EU and the way they look after data protection, there's been some changes in terms of some of the personnel that the EU deploy to uh, look into data protection issues. Yes, so this is all around dealing with big tech and social media companies. And I referred to one of the earlier episodes about the Irish regulator finding herself in the position that she is the lead supervisory authority for actually the top 10 big tech companies in the world from Amazon, Facebook, Google, etc. All those businesses are based in Dublin as part of their EU headquarters. And under the GDPR legislation, it said that the regulator of the country in which those companies are based, they step in as lead supervisory authority in any complaint. And what's happened over the last three years is that the Irish regulator, no surprise, has got bogged down in something like 25 investigations into these big companies. So it's impractical really for one country to be the lead supervisory authority managing the data protection rights of 500 million citizens on their own. And even though they have the support of the European Data Protection Board, what's really interesting about this case is that the Court of the Justice of the European Union have now decided that the member states' regulators can now act for their own country. In other words, bypassing this lead supervisory authority when coming to regulate these big tech companies. So in practical terms, what that means is where everybody was waiting on the Irish regulator to issue a decision, a fine an investigation. Now you have the other 26 European countries 
and regulators, I should say, in those countries being able to do their own parallel investigations. So that should be really fascinating because we will then see the EU really flex its muscles across the member states to actually tackle some of the issues that have come to light with these big tech companies. I think that will be really fascinating. But one does ask the question whether it's the thin edge of the wedge for the framework called the one-stop shop. In other words, where they try to centralise it, they will end up delegating it back to the member states, the power of investigation. So that will be a very interesting space to watch. But the EU are not letting up. And I know it's not data protection, but one to keep an eye on is the Digital Markets Act, which the EU are bringing in, which is all about these dominant tech companies using practices to get rid of the competitors and have unfair practices. So this new Digital Markets Act is going to be implemented to address those, and that's going to be big news for those platforms and social media companies. They will not be allowed to operate the way they have been up to now. You're listening to Privacy Matters, the podcast series exploring the world of data protection and privacy, powered by Be Secure. The EU have been busy with data protection and they've updated what's termed the standard contractual clauses. The standard contractual clauses is a contract which polices the transfer of data from outside of the EU, so from the EU to third countries. So, for instance, if it was America, Singapore, even China. So this is a very important document. It has been updated because of Brexit, but also because of the removal of the Privacy Shield legal framework. And the effective date for this to come in is the 27th of June, and they're allowing a three-month repeal date, effectively, for the old standard contractual clauses. And the contracts that are being negotiated now before the 27th of September, they will be allowed to continue. So it's quite a technical area, but it's quite important for our our listeners to, to be aware that It's fast moving. The EU have already updated these standard contractor clauses to make them more fit for purpose. So that's one for people working in the international data transfer space to be very, very aware of. Now, let's talk about ad tech, real time bidding for eyeballs, I guess. There have been some developments in Ireland. Absolutely. One of the privacy campaigners, he's the former chief policy officer of Brave, a company that is providing the browser services to block these ad and cookie technologies. He has brought a lawsuit against Google, Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, and a US telco company called TNT in relation to this real-time bidding practice that's happening. And he describes this as being the largest data breach in history. And I've attended a number of his presentations, which which are fantastic, which are really, really interesting. But what he's saying here is, and it's been reported before, that these big companies have more than 5,000 data points on each person. And real-time bidding is the, what in effect is unregulated practices of advertising us as citizens as a product using the over 5,000 data points to advertising companies to be able to bid to put ads in front of you. And he presented in one of his seminars the uh, all the different types of data that these companies are able to collect. So if you were saying, oh, I'm going on holidays, I'm doing an outdoor holiday next week, the amount of data they collect is not just around your holiday. 
They won't just serve you ads about your holidays. They collect far more information. And what this gentleman is saying here and filing his uh, law complaint is that this information is being used for more than one purpose. It's just a pure collection of data regardless, and they will serve those to the advertisers to the highest bidder. So we are indeed the product of these platforms. 5,000 data points potentially for a single individual. Where is that data being collected? It's been collected off all sorts of online platforms. So it's not just social media, it's across all online. Examples would be for your Google search. Anything that is recorded in the Google search is one source of it. Any apps that you use, they're all collecting not only data directly from the apps, but indirectly from the platforms that you use. And that's the issue. They're tracking you across all of the internet platforms, all the different applications that you have on your iPhone, even from your smartphone. So it's wide open. And this is the big fear with the internet of things, this phrase that we talk about our smart lives going forward, the way we live at home, the entertainment systems we use, the surround sound, the aircon in your house. All those things are being monitored and being collected as a data point on you. And that's where the issue is. It's the regulation of that, and more importantly, restricting the purpose to which the data can be used. And it's that point in particular that is the element of this complaint. Now, it's not all bad news with regards to data. It's had a a particular use in fighting crime or solving crime. One of my network colleagues on LinkedIn posted a very interesting update on a news story in the UK, and he asks the question, is the future of prisons an app. And the story here is that sex offenders in the UK are having their phones tracked by the police. The app can search banned words and images and behaviour, including watching porn and posting sex chat on forms. So any sign of wrongdoing will send an email alert to the police. Isn't that very interesting how that could work? And the name of the app is called eSafe app. It's being used in Northamptonshire and Cumbria Police. And they have potentially the ability to roll this out to cover 60,000 registered sex offenders. So when you think about the technology being put to good use and being able to provide a service at scale, I think we would all recognize that as being a very good thing. Putting data protection in here. One of the key things is that the consent of the data subject had to be obtained in order to provide this technology and the monitoring of the screens and the keyboards, etc. But I thought that was quite an interesting one to bring up, how technology could help us in certain areas of our lives, especially in community policing. All of which leads us quite neatly into looking ahead to the next five to ten years in data protection. And the world is gradually moving, hopefully, out of the the pandemic. So post-COVID-19, what do you see the role of data protection being in, in business? So we touched on this in an earlier episode where we spoke about the practices of employers having to collect lots of data, your information that may not have required before. And I think a lot of the practice around the pandemic, we all understood was there for a purpose. I think the question in data protection going forward is, where's the rollback on that practice? Where should it be rolled back? What is the good aspect that we should keep and what's the bad aspect that we need to get rid of? And I think in the next couple of years and more in the next year or two, we'll see lots more cases coming through where employees will say, no, I do not want to be monitored in in that way going forward. So an example would be remote working. 
Lots of employers are saying we allow you to work now maybe two days a week from home. We still want to collect all the information that we put in place during the year 2020. But actually, the world will move on and say, we're now post-COVID-19. Why are we needing to collect so much data? And it can go even into monitoring your keyboards, the way that you work. It'll also into facial recognition with the cameras, etc., to be able to monitor if you're at your screen, if you're working properly. And all those practices, which maybe we accepted during the COVID-19. But I think going forward, you will see lots of pushback on that. And I think the privacy groups will be very active in this space, saying that emergency legislation given to government in particular to do this stuff will need to be rolled back because we should be post-COVID-19 very soon. So that would be a very interesting space to have a look at. This is Privacy Matters, the data protection podcast series from Be Secure, the Channel Islands experts in data protection, advice and services. Now, Brian, in the UK, there's been a great deal of discussion of late around the government's plans there to share people's personal NHS data with third parties. I know both the Royal College of GPs and the British Medical Association have expressed concerns, saying that patients haven't been given enough warning regarding the move. It was due to happen on July the 1st, but has now been put back until September. On the surface, it seems like a reasonable idea to use data to improve health and care services. On balance, would you say this is a good or bad idea? I think this is the question we need to ask of all big digital projects. I think we recognise there will be some good aspects to it. Why would we not use the benefits of technology? The second thing is there are disadvantages. I mean, the simple question is, have government been able to demonstrate their competency in dealing with big projects, whether it's infrastructure down to this type of data centralization uh, and the cybersecurity aspects of it. So this project has very similar hallmarks to the open banking process or functionality that was certainly uh, implemented two or three years ago. And it starts off by saying, we'd like to offer you new services. In order for me to offer you new services, I need to see all of your data. And certainly in open banking, the idea was we will review a year's worth of your information or maybe even longer and come back to you with uh, new quotes for your health insurance, for your car hire, for your car purchase. It starts off like that. But the problem is mission creep. Where does it start and where does it end? So using that as the first example, this leads us nicely into NHS. So the NHS, on the back of the COVID-19, one must remember, there's a great urgency to centralise data to get a real understanding of patients' uh, health records, how we're going to manage the older populations, the severity of sickness and health within the sector. But it's caused real problems and it was all due to start on the 1st of July and it has been stopped and stopped only because of the privacy groups in the UK threatening legal action. So think about that for a second. If there were no privacy activists, who's going to police this? Who's going to actually step in and stop the government? And I'll quote some very interesting uh, points from an article here where the Open Democracy, one of the privacy groups, said that the scheme was to harvest personal data into one massive database, which private corporations would be able to access. So GPs call this a data grab, but it needed to have the transparency of the patient's consent to be able to do that. Now, from the very basic stuff in data protection, this is health records. And we heard from our last episode, health records, is what they call special category data. It's the highest risk. 
and you must have, under the law, explicit consent from each data subject to allow something to happen to that data. And this is what the government has tried to avoid doing. They're trying to get around that data. I beg your pardon, get around the requirement to get explicit consent. And what's very interesting with the case is that when they talked about the patient's record, they said that that patient data was worth about, if you put it in economic terms, £10 billion. So you could imagine the greedy commercial organisations wanting to get some of the action in relation to the health records. But the details go from everything from diagnosis to medications to depression, abortion, the sexually transmitted diseases and all other types of medical records. So it isn't just about the games I play on, on my computer. It's, it's the most personal and intimate of data. And within here, they're saying that it's been reported they tried to do this back in 2013-14 on a smaller project, but over 2 million people opted out amid the concerns. So the question is, did we learn anything from the earlier project in 2013 or 14 in relation to approach of this particular project? The answer appears to be no. And what's happened here is that they have used the extraordinary powers of the COVID-19 to try and force this through. And he has described it as a way of being able to modernise the management of healthcare in the UK. That's the way it's been put forward. The government have said here, it's the development of health and care policy that can then be used by organisations that have an appropriate legal basis and a legitimate need to use. Now, you know as well as I do, they're lovely legal speak. And if the law was the law, we would never have Cambridge Analytica. We would never have some of these data breaches that have happened. So the question is, do we have confidence in government in doing big projects or not? And they put forward the answer as being the fact that the data is de-identified. It means that you will not see the person's name attached to the data. But under examination, they then acknowledged that the data could be reversed and you could be identified. So it's like the back door is open. Everybody can effectively identify the patient's records. And the most important thing is that the UK ICO regulator made it clear that de-identified data is still personal data. So the point here is it doesn't matter what he said. Identified, de-identified, it's all personal data and it's at risk of being abused. And one other angle, which is very interesting here, is that through the Brexit negotiations, it's a reported that the American organisations are very interested in, in getting involved in the NHS. And it talks about those organisations being able to help to manage more expensive patients and what services could be cut in a commercial way for managing the NHS. So one sort of has to stand back and say, well, what's the modus operandi for this? Is it just to digitalize the records or is it to, in the fullness of time, exclude me and you because of a certain age group, because we're very expensive to look after? And that is the core of data protection challenging government in the fine balance between modernizing the way we work and respecting the privacy of all our rights as data citizens. This is Privacy Matters, the data protection and privacy podcast with Brian Sione. So in other news recently, some concerns have been expressed by the Information Commissioner with regards to facial recognition. Yes, the UK ICO in particular has been very active around three key things, facial recognition, artificial intelligence, and the safety of children. 
There are new codes of practice that have come in, in particular for the safety of children, which was a, a one-year transition period. So that is coming in in the start of September this year. Anyone providing services to children online must follow that age-appropriate design code, which is a practice that will be regulated. That's very important to be aware of. Artificial intelligence, they've brought in new suggested code of practice for auditing artificial intelligence. We all know the computer can say yes and the computer can say no, but it's the complexity of artificial intelligence that the ICO is particularly keen on. If companies cannot explain how it works and how it gets to the decision, then there's a problem. So very interesting, the code of conduct and auditing of AI is a really interesting thing that's going to come in. And facial recognition, she has ruled on a number of schemes run by police in particular in the UK, and none of them were found to be compliant with the law in data protection. So the whole facial recognition is quite an important space that's not going to go away. And it's one to really watch going forward. It's going to be very difficult for police just to indiscriminately mass surveillance uh, practices on the public. And that is what she's rolling back on. But it's very, very interesting. We have a number of uh, cases where uh, individuals have taken uh, all the way to the High Court and Supreme Court, I believe, actions against police forces indiscriminately using facial recognition. So be very aware of that one. Now, news on a replacement for the so-called privacy shield for the uninitiated might be worth just recapping what the Privacy Shield was, why it's important, and how it's being updated. Yes, the Privacy Shield was the legal framework for the transfer of data from the EU across to the US. It was primarily looking at the big social media companies, data going back and forth, and how that was going to be protected. It's also to do with any company transferring data from the EU to the US. But in particular, it was challenged by Max Schrem. It was found to be unlawful simply because of the overreaching use of by the U.S. law enforcement authorities in the indiscriminate use of that information coming from the EU into the U.S. And that was found to have been unlawful. So that has effectively been blown away. And we're waiting to see, will the EU come up with a new replacement? And I think that's going to be a lot more difficult this time round to come up with something that actually works. Keep an eye to that space. We would expect it to probably be another year or two before we get something to replace that. With the changes to the way data is transferred between the EU and the US, presumably a knock-on impact for some of the big social media companies. Yes, it's been reported that the US lawmakers have actually done a lot of investigation about the anti-competitive practices of big tech in their own country. And it's been reported that new laws will be coming through that might effectively break up these big companies. But it's still early days, but it's quite an interesting one to watch going forward. What does it mean for big tech, for Google, for Amazon, for Facebook going forward? Now, we're all familiar with GDPR here in Europe. The United States is embarking on something similar, but it's, it's not a federal law yet. No, and it's very interesting. Of the 50 states in America, only two have passed anything that looks like a GDPR privacy law. California and Virginia Colorado have approved it but not signed. It just goes to show how far behind America really is in this privacy law. And I think it just shows that the EU is racing ahead in this space. President Biden talked about bringing in a federal law in privacy space. 
but we have yet to see it. So America very far behind in this particular space. Bringing it back to you and me, the citizen consumer, what's coming down the tracks in terms of data protection and and the way we access our data and, and what we can ask for if we feel something's not quite right? I think the phrase one would use is the law is not the law until it's enforced. And I think this is the message we will see in the next two to three years. The EU are bringing in what they call an EU collective redress scheme, which is a bit like the scheme they have for your delayed flights compensation. So this is going to be something similar. It's an online portal. If you've been affected in relation to your consumer rights and your data protection rights, you can actually go online to the portal and actually submit a claim to the appropriate regulator to enforce your rights. So a long story short, I think this is going to go down the way of the regulators not being able to manage the volume of work. The courts are backlogged. So what's the alternative that's going to allow citizens to enforce their rights? And I think a little bit like a parking fine, we'll end up, I think, having fining regime or a a complaint regime that will submit like parking fines to organizations for certain types of infringements or breaches. And the bigger cases will be probably under these representative actions we mentioned the previous time, allowing them to go forward more easily and more effectively. So I think that's a huge thing for EU citizens and for citizens in equivalent countries as well to benefit from that change in the law and to allow access to the enforcement of data protection. It should be really, really interesting. And is your understanding that uh, as a non-EU citizen, if my data was infringed within the EU, even if I was a Jersey or a UK resident, I would still be able to take action? Under GDPR, you have three ways of raising a claim, where you live, where you work, and where the data breach occurred. So within those three scenarios, you can raise a complaint. With the mechanisms and the equivalence that we have between the EU and our country here in Jersey, we should be able to avail of that mechanism to use the same complaint process to enforce our rights. That's the theory. How it works in practice, I think we've yet to see. Because in Jersey, we don't have real test cases to refer to under this new law. But maybe that's a challenge. Maybe we should be seeing test cases to see how the law will be interpreted. But I think it'll be a super keen area to for people to look at going forward. Certainly never a dull moment in the world of data protection. Uh, Brian Siney from Be Secure, thank you once again for spending time talking to us about data protection. If you're in business in Jersey or elsewhere, I hope you found the whole series as interesting and informative as I have. If you'd like more information and advice on data protection, head to besecure-consultants.com. That's besecure-consultants.com. And of course, you can listen to other podcasts in this series, Privacy Matters, via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the Channel 103 website, channel103.com. Thanks for listening. And from myself and Brian Siney, thank you. Thank you. Listen to other episodes of Privacy Matters wherever you get your podcasts. And for expert advice on data protection and privacy, visit besecure-consultants.com.